My name is Paul. I'm one of the elders here at Riverside, and we are in the midst of a series in 1 Corinthians. And uh, today we're going to be picking up on a uh, topic that Ezra kicked off for us last week, the very non-controversial, uh, easy to talk about uh, sexual immorality and sex, right? I've already thanked Ezra for putting me on for today. <laughs> Next time I'm going to ask for the meek shall inherit the earth. We're going to go with that. But um, seriously, though, um, I, I understand how sensitive a topic this is. Um, and how uncomfortable it can be to talk about. Uh, so parents and teens, you're welcome. Have a fun car ride home. Um, but this really is an important topic. And the reason we're talking about today is, is Paul is addressing this with the church in Corinth, but it absolutely has implications for us in our culture today. But I think one of the things that's really important is for us to get a sense of what exactly is sexual immorality. I think we need to start off from a common speaking point, and I, I want us to look at what does it look like from God's perspective, and what does it look like from the world's perspective. In God's view, sexual immorality is, is any use of sex or our sexuality outside of his design, which is meant to be between a man and woman in marriage. You know, it's, it's easy to focus on maybe certain aspects of that that fall outside of that, but what we're really looking at here is um, any misuse of our sexuality falls outside of God's design. I think it's also an important thing for us to note that temptation and thoughts in these areas are not sin in and of themselves. You know, Jesus was tempted. He never sinned. And, you know, we get bombarded from all directions you know, you could be driving down the road and see a billboard, a thought pops into your head. That's not a sin, but what do you do from that point on can determine it? Do you hold on to it? Do you relish it? Do you act on it later? Or is it something like, this is just not something I need to be thinking about? You take that to God and you push it out of your head. I want us to keep this in mind as we're going through the scripture today because it's really important to understand God's view on it. And in comparison, what's the world view? I know I'm speaking a bit in generalities here, but I would say that the prevailing view in our culture is kind of an anything goes, or at least almost anything goes. You know, every impulse is okay, and when you act on them, uh, it, it's celebrated as, hey, this is, this is me exerting my freedom and my identity. And if you don't hold that view, um, you very quickly can be looked at as being judgmental or narrow-minded. And I, I think we can all see it. it. It's inherent that the world's view of sexuality is all around us. I mean, turn on a TV show. Um, I said earlier... My kids are 10 and 12. It's, it's hard to find a show, you know. Thank God for the Food Network for the most part. You know, we can watch, we can watch stuff there, right? But there's, the world's view is incorporated into almost every aspect of our life, and it gets to a point where it starts to normalize it. And so I think it's a good thing today that we're taking a step back and, and really looking um, at this topic. 
And while I was prepping for the sermon, too, you know, we, we understand that this is all around us, but I wanted to get some sense of what the impact is. And I started looking up stats. And then I was really sad that I started looking up stats because it is disturbing, you know, what's out there, not just how prevalent um, sexual immorality is, pornography, um, but the problems that it causes. Um, just some of the stats that, that I saw, 40 million Americans say they regularly visit pornography sites, and that's not just men, about one-third of those people are women. Human trafficking, and this one really makes me sick to my stomach, uh, they refer to it as a multi-billion dollar industry. The fact that it's even called an industry and the fact that there's, it's wrong on so many levels. This one really hit home. Uh, 11, that's the age when most kids are first exposed to some type of pornography. And the survey I saw said that 94% of kids are gonna be exposed in some way by the time they're 14. This isn't just a problem in our society either. Um, if you get a chance, you can look up stats. It's a problem in the church. Okay, this is not something that is just outside, apart from us, um, but there's all kinds of stats. Youth pastors talking about kids coming to them on a regular basis dealing with sexually related issues, pornography. Um, it was almost 60% of pastors said that that's one of the main things that men come to them to talk to them about. These are Christians. These are people following Jesus. This is a real problem. And it's a real issue that we have to be ready to take on. Now, I don't know if this makes you feel any better or not. It didn't quite make me feel any better. But we're not alone in this. And this certainly isn't anything that's new. And again, it's why we're talking about it today. Paul was addressing this directly to the Corinthian church. So a lot of what they're facing, obviously, um, Many, many years separated, but the, the, the issues, the root issues are still there. And this is a church that has been dealing with lots and lots of things. If you've been here for the past few weeks, you can see this was a really dysfunctional church. So this letter that Paul is writing, this is not a lighthearted, hey, how you doing? I love you. You love me. This is, there's some bad stuff going on here, and we need to address it through God's perspective. And, and I can tell you, uh, I don't know if any of you uh, feel the same way, but these last few weeks as we're going through this, it, it's been a challenge. These are some really hard words that we're bringing. Um, and at times it's very uncomfortable. I can tell you, I've been prepping this for a while. It's a little uncomfortable, right? But sometimes I think being uncomfortable is really good for us. Because if we're not willing to sort of step out of our own view and get pressed a little bit on what we think, why we think it, who we're following. Are we determining? Is God determining? We need to be uncomfortable a little bit. I think it forces us to, to figure out whose lens we're looking through. I also love, too, it shows us there is no topic off-limit for God. He knows it anyway. And if we can't address it here in the church and through his word, where are we going to address it? So as uncomfortable as today may be, 
Um, my hope is that as we go through this scripture, when we get to the other side, you're actually going to find some tremendous comfort when we get there. So is everybody up for the challenge? Anybody feeling uncomfortable already? All right, good. I'll take the nervous laughter as a yes. Um, we're going to dive into the scripture. Before we do that, just take a moment to pray. Father, um, thank you for gathering us here today. Your word is a gift, even when it's a word that maybe we don't want to hear, maybe it's a word that is hard for us to understand and digest. Um, my prayer today is simple, that um, the Holy Spirit just opens our hearts and our minds and allows us to uh, hear what you want us to hear. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we again are in 1 Corinthians we're in chapter 6, and we're in verses 12 through 20. I'm going to read through the entire passage. And the scripture says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Like I said, this isn't the most lighthearted letter in the, in the world, right? This is, uh, Paul's got some very pointed things to say here about sexual immorality. And as I was studying this and, and trying to think of how I wanted to share it with you today, when I was reading through um, the, the manner in which Paul wrote this, it kind of reminded me of a lawyer a little bit. Like he's making some points and he's, he's giving sort of his final um, uh, closing statement or closing argument to the jury saying, okay, these are some things you should do and here are the reasons why. And so I'd like to dissect this scripture in that manner. I see two key points in what Paul is talking about here and I see them in verse 18 and verse 20. There's two things he's telling the people, the church in Corinth to do. One is flee sexual sin and the other is glorify God with your body. Okay, saying, do these things. And then he spends the rest of the time giving you arguments as to why that's a good thing to do. And I saw five different arguments in there. They're, they're related but different. And here are the arguments that I'm seeing. The first one is from verse 12. Freedom in Christ does not mean you get to do whatever you want. The second argument our bodies are important because God values the physical world that he created. 
the third point, and I get this from verse 17. As members of God's family through Jesus, we are actually joined to God. There's a oneness there. And then from verses 18 and 19, what we do to and with our bodies impacts our souls. And then finally, at the end of the section where he's bringing out the big guns, Paul's saying, ultimately, your bodies aren't your own. That's a lot to digest, and what we're going to do is take a look at each one of these and see the arguments that Paul is putting before us of why we should be fleeing sexual immorality and why we should be using our, our bodies to glorify God. So let's look at the first one. The first one, our freedom in Christ does not mean we should keep on sinning and do anything we want. Um, if you notice um, in the scripture, you got some quotes up there. Uh, in the commentaries that I read, these are either things that Paul said to them, maybe in person or through letters, um, or other people in the church were saying, but they were being misused and misinterpreted. People were using this idea of freedom in Christ to basically justify living however they wanted to live even when they knew it was in direct disobedience with what God had called them to. Now, I think maybe that's not the most uncommon sentiment. Um, I mean, if, if people think about it, okay, okay, this is awesome. Jesus forgave all our sins. Sweet. Let's go party. Let's do whatever we want, right? But that's not what the Bible tells us. In another one of Paul's letters, uh, this one to the Romans, he actually addresses this really directly. It's in the uh, end of chapter 5 into the beginning of chapter 6. And at this point, Paul is talking about just how awesome a gift the grace of God is, the willingness to forgive our sins. And he says this, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he goes on a little bit more and talks about how we are meant to walk in, in newness of life. When we encounter Jesus, our life and our perspective should change. We're called to live differently. You know, if we take the attitude that we can do whatever we want um, you know, after being forgiven, to me, a couple of questions arise. Why would we want to go back to something that wasn't good for us and we needed to be forgiven of in the first place? And if we do want to go back, were we ever really sorry? Now, I'm not talking about, I mean, we all stumble, right? We, we all we talked about temptations. You have things that trip you up. But what I'm talking about here is you're actively going after something that you just know is not right. If you're doing that, have you really repented of it? Have you given that over to God? Because that's a huge part of forgiveness, if we're not sorry for the sin to begin with, what does the forgiveness of Jesus really mean? You know, when we look at the death and resurrection of Jesus as just a get-out-of-jail-free card, you know, hey, all right, our sin's forgiven. 
we end up overemphasizing the freedom that we have in Christ, but we underemphasize the value and the cost that he paid to give it to us. We really end up cheapening that gift of grace. It's almost like it's attempting to diminish what Jesus did on the cross. Part of true repentance comes from understanding the seriousness of your sin and what it took to cover it. And when you start beginning to understand that, you don't want to go back and do the things you were doing before. Your perspective starts to change. And this absolutely applies to our attitudes towards sex and our sexuality. If we're forgiven in Christ, we acknowledge that since he's the creator of all things, including sex, he came up with it, right? It's best to follow his design and not our own. So that's Paul's first argument. Am I uncomfortable yet? All right, good, we're getting there. His second argument, our bodies are important because God values the physical world he created. Now this, I think, was a really important one at this point in time because in Greek society, the material world was sort of, it was looked at as less. It was more about uh, the importance of the spirit. So what you did with your body, no big deal. Um, Sex was more looked at as like an appetite to be satisfied. Certainly not a a gift from God that, that we should be using to glorify him. I think in our society today, we tend to go in the other direction, but land almost on the exact same result. We tend to put a premium on our bodies, and maybe even more than that, what we do with our bodies. That's our way of um, becoming free and expressing ourselves, and we tend to downplay our spiritual nature, and certainly the fact that our spiritual nature is eternal. But the Bible tells us that neither of these are really true. God created us with both physical and spiritual aspects, and they're woven together, right? Dust and spirit. So we can't overemphasize one or the other. You know, the fact that Jesus became a man, that he took on flesh and blood and lived among us to bring both physical healing and spiritual restoration into one or the other, he came to do both. That shows that he values the creative world. Back at Genesis, he said all the things he created was good, were good. And that includes our bodies and and what we do with it. There's importance there. I think Paul says it pretty plainly in verse uh, 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We're going to have resurrected physical bodies just like Jesus does at some point. We're not all going to be sitting on a cloud, floating around, playing a harp. There's going to be the physical and the spiritual. So what we do with our bodies, again, is important. Paul's third argument that I saw that we pulled from verse 17 is this, that when we're saved by Jesus, we're joined to him. This is one I still have a hard time getting my head wrapped around. The fact that God lives in me. That there's no separation anymore. And I think at the time when Paul's writing this letter, that that was a pretty foreign concept uh, to the people too. Because um, 
Think about like pagan religions, they had their priests and their priestesses. There, there always had to be an intercession. There had to be an intermediary between the people and their gods. And the same thing um, with uh, uh, the Jewish faith. Uh, just think of the temple. There were all these different rooms, and it got more selective. The more you got you know, closer and closer to the Holy of Holies where God resided, only one person was allowed in there, and that was the high priest, and it was once a year, and they tied a rope around his foot just so they could drag him out if God killed him, right? This was a pretty, uh, th- there was real separation, and it was because of the sin that man had that God couldn't be around. Um, you know, I, one of my favorite uh, pieces of scripture is um, when Jesus died on the cross, it says that the veil that was in front uh, in the temple ripped from top to bottom. Um, now, this wasn't some skinny little see-through veil. This thing was probably like 30 feet tall, several inches thick. I mean, it was more a wall than it was anything else. But through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. God did it. He removed that separation. Never understood what that verse meant. When I did, I I was saying it earlier, I still get goosebumps thinking about what that means. Because of what Jesus did, he bridged the gap between us and God. So much so that we can go directly and confidently and pray to him. And so much so that he sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to live in us. We are temples of God. And when we invite sin into our lives, the Bible tells us we can grieve the Holy Spirit. When we're we're actively pursuing things that are against God's will and our identity in Jesus... We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And that includes when we're we're abusing our sexuality. We're not using it the way God intended. So that's Paul's third argument of why we should run screaming from sexual immorality. His fourth is this. What we do to and with our bodies impacts our souls. Look back at verse 18. It says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You know, God created sex to be this beautiful um, and essential ingredient in a marriage between a man and woman. It's meant to show us what our relationship with God is supposed to be. There's no pretense. There's no hiding. There's complete trust. There's complete commitment. It's a foreshadow of what our relationship with God is supposed to be. There's nothing hidden between us. But when we look at sex as just an act or we use it in ways outside of the way he's designed, someone always gets hurt. It hurts our relationship with God because it shows that we would prefer to follow our own desires over what the Holy Spirit is guiding us to, what God's word tells us. It hurts the the person or the other people that we're involved with because that, that commitment 
that's supposed to be there is not. And ultimately, it hurts ourselves because it deeply impacts our personality. It goes right to the core of who we are. Our, our sexuality is part of us. And when we misuse it, it damages us. Now, out of all of Paul's arguments, I think this is probably one of the hardest for us to come to grips with and probably one of the hardest for people to, you know, to really jump on board with. I mean, really, how much of an impact can it have? I mean, come on. It happens all the time. People are doing whatever they want to do. But I ask you today, when we're hearing messages like this, are you still trying to grab control and make the determination on what that's supposed to look like? Or are you listening to what God's word says and are you looking at it through his lens? It's not easy, but we have a choice to make here. Are we going to listen or are we going to ignore? Finally, the biggest argument that Paul makes for fleeing sexual immorality and glorifying God with our bodies is this. Our bodies are not our own. As Christians, they belong to God because both our bodies and our souls have been bought with a price, the ultimate price, and that's the life of Jesus. Now, if that last argument I talked about was sort of the number one hard to digest, I'd say this is probably 1A. Uh, this is another one that we don't like to jump on board with. Uh, for a couple of reasons. When we hear language just like bought with a price, that comes with some pretty heavy connotations and, and sets us off, and, and, and rightfully so. But it also has this, this uh, view that, that we need help, that we can't pull ourselves out of this, that we need somebody to come in and rescue us from something. And that certainly is not a modern American ideology. So when you combine those two things, this whole idea of eh, somebody bought me with a price, it just doesn't always settle right. But here's the reality. That's exactly what Jesus did. He paid a price to pull us out of the slavery that we were under to our sin. This is really important. If you don't walk out of here with anything else today, walk out with this. Forgiveness of sins has a cost. It's not free. If it was, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. There's always, always, always a price to be paid. Now, one of the interesting things I found, too, um, I, I looked up the, the whole uh, verbiage of, of bought with a price. It comes from the Greek word agora. And that definitely, it translates as to, to buy, but in special instances, it also means to redeem. That's the other part of what Jesus did. He didn't just purchase our free, he redeemed us. Because of that, God sees us as he sees Jesus. Our bodies and our souls are perfect and blameless in God's eyes because of what Jesus has done. When we receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers us, we should have joy to use our bodies, to use our sexuality in the way he wants us to use it. 
So those are Paul's five arguments. Anybody squirming? All right. Oh, okay. It's even more uncomfortable. All right. I'm with you. This is some hard stuff. There might be some very specific things that you're struggling with in here. But I'd like to leave you with this thought. If we walk out the doors today without understanding the reason why God bought us with a price, I think it's real easy for us to look at these directives that that Paul is giving and these five arguments and say, okay, great, there's another list of things I have to try to do. Uh, I'm going to fight my way through grudgingly. I'm not going to like it, you know, killjoy God. Um, But what we see here is when we understand the why, that's not what, that's not what uh, God's intentions are. And here's the answer. Why did Jesus die on the cross? And he did it because he loves you. And he loves me. Each one of us individually, perfectly. He did not want to be separated from us. But because of our sin, we were separated from him. Jesus gave up literally everything. He emptied himself of his power. He emptied himself of his glory. He suffered immeasurably because he was separated from his father. Perfect unity, perfect love. And he did all of that for you and for me. If it was only for you or for me, he would have done it. When we start understanding the why behind the cross, that's when I can start looking back at what these things Paul is telling me here in this letter. I can say, wow, I want to live like that because I know what he did for me. I know that he created me. I know that he loves me perfectly and he wants what's best for me. And then I can start looking at my sexuality and how I use it in a completely different way. I want to use it to glorify him. It's a gift from him. Let me ask the band to come up. I know this is some difficult stuff, believe me. I'm sweating a little bit up here too, but these are things we need to talk about. And as I said, there's nothing off limits with God. And if we can't address it here, where are we going to address it? So as you leave today, I want to leave you with two questions to chew on. Are your views on sexuality going to be shaped by God? Or are they going to be shaped by the world? Are you going to pick and choose And the second question is, probably even more so this week, because we talked about it today, you're going to get bombarded this week. You're going to probably see it more than you've ever seen it before. What are you going to do when those temptations come across your path? I just ask you to spend some time praying about that and really thinking about it this week. And I also want to say this. If there's anybody here that is struggling with this now, has struggled with it in the past, whether It has to do with sex or it has to do with, um, you know, just things that you haven't let go of yet. You don't want to turn over to God. Reach out. 
you know, talk to me, talk to Ezra, talk to Keith, talk to a, a, a trusted Christian friend, but don't just sit on it. As we talked about here, it eats us away from the inside. It may be really uncomfortable, maybe one of the hardest conversations you've ever had to have. But when we're in those really uncomfortable moments and we're honestly seeking the wisdom of God, that's when he really shows up in some powerful ways. Let's pray.